Now, by any standard, 69 million holiday snaps represent quite a collection, leaving aside where you'd store them, working out when you'd have time to view them all would be enough of a challenge for most of us, but not for researchers at the Data Science Lab here at Warwick Business School. Professors Tobias Price and Susie Moat didn't literally leaf through hundreds of thousands of photograph albums, but over a two-year period they did effectively analyse data from them to come up with conclusions that have important implications for the measurement of travel patterns worldwide. In this Core Insights podcast, we'll be discussing some of their findings. I'm Trevor Barnes, and I'm joined by the authors of the study, Tobias Price, Professor of Behavioural Science and Finance, and Susie Moat, likewise Professor of Behavioural Science here at Warwick Business School, and both co-directors of the Data Science Lab. Professor Moat, first of all, what was the impetus behind the study? So if you've ever flown into an airport in the UK, you might have been approached by somebody with a clipboard who wanted to know where you'd spent the last 12 months. Now, this is the way that the Office for National Statistics gathers data on how many people come to the UK each year from different countries. You can imagine that this data is really important for a whole wide range of stakeholders. So obviously in the tourism industry, for example, um, we want to know who's coming here, what they might be interested in, what we might expect in the future. But, you know, looking to measure how many people are coming to visit us um, via surveys can be quite expensive. It can take quite a long time. And so what we wondered is whether there wasn't a possibility to use the huge amount of data that we now leave behind, for example, by taking photographs, to get quicker, lower cost measurements of how many people come to the UK each year. But, Professor Price, one would have thought looking through the data from 69 million holiday snaps, courtesy of the photo sharing platform Flickr, is hardly speeding up the exercise. You might think so, but the advantage we um, were able to dig into was that these 69 million photographs came with, with a location. So we knew where these photos have been taken because users labeled them as, for example, um, having been taken in central London at a particular sightseeing site. And so what it allowed us to do is to create for about half a million users which were um, uploading these photos detailed records of where they have traveled around the globe. So basically like the breadcrumbs they left behind whilst they were taking flight from one country to the next during the normal holidays. And as soon as you do this, you're creating this time series of taking a photo, for example, today in London and next week in New York City, then you start to see patterns, dynamics, how these people are moving around the globe. What we then had to do in order to measure how many people are coming to the UK, for example, we had to figure out how can we um, translate this sequence of countries they have taken photos in two estimates how many people are arriving to the UK. And we were inspired by what actually the Office for National Statistics does, also what the convention is, which the United Nations provides. And this is that they ask you, where have you spent the tw past 12 months or so? So that's the United Nations um, convention on where your country of residence is. 
And in order to replicate that in our data sets with the breadcrumbs of GPS locations, we basically made a very simple um, assumption and this was as follows. So basically, if you have taken a photo today in the UK, then we assumed you stayed in that country until you have taken the next photo, which was not in the UK. It's a very simplifying assumption, but we will see further down the line that this simple assumption worked. Because you yourself were aware that as the so-called simplifying assumptions had to be made, but that didn't actually affect adversely the outcome. No. So we thought it's taking quite a leap to suggest that somebody who has taken a photo in one country, say France, has stayed there until we see them take a photograph in another country like Germany. That's almost certainly not true. But in order to generate these estimates, we had to make some sort of assumption about where people were between photographs. So this seemed like a reasonable place to start. And we were um, delighted to see that even with this huge oversimplification, um, we could still generate estimates of the number of visitors um, to a country such as the UK from other countries um, that matched well with the official measurements generated by survey methodology. Now, in the first instance, as I understand it, the aim was to estimate global tourism statistics for the G7 countries, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, Britain and the US. Why choose those? So if we take a step back, so the UK was an example we looked at first because this was the situation we were most familiar with in terms of um, our colleagues at the Office of International Statistics looking into similar questions and producing this international passenger survey. But if you want to create a data-driven method exploiting the fact that people are leaving behind traces online, then what you are interested in is actually finding out whether your new method, your alternative method, is robust. And this robustness is tested best if you are applying it in many different scenarios. And this was the motivation to look at six other, and in total the G7 countries. And it was not only the case that we had a few more examples, six more examples, it was also the case that these other countries are using different baseline methods, so different methods which are applied in order to measure um, travel influx conventionally. So, for example, um, in the UK, so Susie has mentioned that this is mainly done by surveys, um, so um, members of the Office for, Office for National Statistics asking arriving passengers at airports and ports where they have spent the past 12 months or so. And um, I have to say um, that anecdotally, uh, very interesting, um, after we have conducted this study, actually I ran into a bunch of those for the first time and I added one data point. Um, luckily, it was after we have concluded our research paper, so we, we didn't manipulate or edit an additional data point which I have created. But coming back to the six other countries, so it's not survey-based in most of the others. For example, in Germany and Italy, it is measured at the place of accommodation. So you are checking in in a hotel and you show your passport. At this point, your um, residence um, is, um, or your country of residence is recorded and reported back. And at some point, this information also in a rather slow process reaches the German equivalent of the Office of Financial Statistics. And so all these other countries adding another method 
some are visa um, based, so for example in Japan, and countries like the US um, are measuring it based on passenger data, which they are collecting as part of the I-94 passenger program. So everybody who has flown into the US might remember that these cards exist where you fill in your details. And probably the most advanced method being in place and in force in Canada, where it's a combination of landing card data of passengers and also um, vehicle number and um, license plate recognition systems. And in addition to the methods that are already in existence, these countries can rely on yours now, a new method. What practical use can they put them to? I think it's important to stress that we are not suggesting that the existing methods are now completely abolished um, and this approach that we have described with um, photo data um, is taken as a, as a replacement. However, we do think that it highlights potential opportunities in the future for reducing cost in generating measurements, for increasing speed in delivering those measurements to people who need to make decisions, and also in, in delivering complementary measurements, because there are cases where you might imagine that existing approaches might experience problems. Maybe somebody tries to dodge the person delivering the survey, for example. So it's illustrating what is possible, but there is further work that we would want to see done before it was used in, in, in practice. Can we just rewind a little bit and look at the practical ways you actually did this? The photos were posted on the um, photograph hosting platform Flickr. Did you, as I suggested, actually have to look through all these albums physically or what? Thankfully, no. <laughs> that would perhaps be pushing us to, to our limits. It's possible to retrieve not only the photos that have been made publicly available, but for us, what was important was the information that was attached to those photographs. So many photographs have information on when they were taken and crucially where they were taken. And you can write a computer program that can collect all of that information. And so then solely with that information on where a photo was taken, when it was taken, and the times and locations of photos taken by the person who, who took that photograph. We can make these streams simulating how people move around the world um, and use that to make the inferences we're describing here. And was it simply the speed of the operation that gave you the edge or what? Speed is a major component because compared to these traditional methods, the main advantage beyond um, reducing cost is actually providing quicker estimates. So if a decision maker, regardless whether this is somebody in, in government who wants to look into, into travel statistics or migration in general, or whether it's a touring, uh, the tourism um, sector, quicker estimates are always better because you have basically a winning edge in terms of a time advantage compared to when the actual numbers would be coming out. So and, and how many people are we talking about? What was the, if you like, the size of the tourist flows you were dealing with? So that vastly differs depending on the country. So what we have seen in previous research is that uh, it also depends crucially how far the other country is away. I mean, we have lots of travelers coming from other countries in Europe. In some cases, this can go into uh, the single digit millions. Uh, some further countries which are further away, then this rapidly decreases. But I mean, we have also seen there's another pattern. I mean, if the country shares a language with the UK, also speaks English, then they tend to travel more often to the UK than this is the case for other countries, Australia, for example. And again, what use can this information be put? 
We hope to see that it um, will open up possibilities for delivering quicker estimates of tourist flows to people who need that information. Um, Even if there's, there's some chance we'll be losing some accuracy, but I suppose when you're trying to decide what information you need to work with, you're probably going to need to weigh up how quickly you can get your hands on that information and whether it is exactly correct. So in this way, we hope that it will offer complementary estimates to more traditional and um, time-consuming, careful ways of, of generating these, these numbers. Presumably, the G7 countries, the authorities all thought, well, brilliant, the system works, the methodology is sound. They were beating a path to your door, presumably. So we got fantastic feedback from a lot of, of, of different people. The only thing we need to be careful about, I mean, it's a huge step to actually introduce a new method in the generation of national statistics. And so this is something which needs to be thoroughly tested, tested more uh, against even other um, uncertainties. And one thing we need to consider is that there are still a few outstanding issues which ideally want to be fixed before this is widely adopted as a method. And I mean, you can always do better, right? I mean, we have seen it's correlated, it's related to the official measurements, but there is a certain uncertainty which actually could be reduced, right? And what are these sources which might contribute to the uncertainty which we are still seeing in our estimates? And this is, for example, the bias which we basically pick up by using one particular data source, Flickr. I mean, not everybody in the world is using this particular service. There's actually an entire portfolio of different online platforms. And if you think about the people who still today are not using the internet or any of these services, then you quickly get an idea about the potential biases which are still present in one particular data set. Because with typical academic restraint, you were aware yourselves that people have to be a bit cautious because of some of the information coming in. Well, so I think this touches on a wider question of the opportunities offered by the data we're all now leaving behind. You know, using our phones, using the internet, swiping in and out of the tube. All of these activities generate these huge data sets on collective human behaviour. Um, and and we, can, we can capture human behaviour at a scale that we couldn't before, um, at a speed we couldn't before. There seems to be all this potential in these new data sets. But it would be incorrect to kid ourselves that these new data sets are perfect. You know, pretty much no data set, in particular on human behaviour, is perfect. And what this is this is more about is is finding an opportunity to find complementary benefits in these data sets in comparison to problems that we've had in the past. So, you know, with a survey, there would normally be steps taken to at least measure the possible bias um, in the population that you were sampling from. So the, the people who were taking your survey and how that related to all the people you were interested in. That's much harder with this sort of data. You know, you might see that richer people are more likely to interact with some of these services or, or people from particular countries are more likely to interact with these sorts of surveys. And we, we, we services and we might not always know what the nature of that bias is, um, but we need to be aware of it when we're trying to work out a use this data. And is this what you had in mind when you suggested that some sort of oversight and a rigorous form of oversight should be in place? Well, so that touches on a, on a number of things. So there's, there's making sure that we understand bias to the greatest extent possible. Now, we were delighted to see with our estimates that despite 
the almost certainly being bias in this data, we could still generate um, estimates that matched with the official statistics. But there are other issues such as um, how sure are we of our, our estimates? Can, can we express the uncertainty? You know, is, is, might the number be much bigger than we think it is or much smaller than we think it is? Or are we very sure it's very close to that number? How, uh, how can we convey that to, to policymakers? And what can we do to help policymakers cope with the fact that if you work with data that somebody else has collected, what if they take that data away? What are you going to do in the future? So in reality, using this sort of method is likely to rely on um, building estimates based on a number of these sorts of services rather than being completely dependent on one service on its own. The crucial importance lies in the possibility to really stream different data sets alongside each other, right? As Susie just explained, there is a certain risk that one data set is not longer available. I mean, that could be for a number of reasons, right? I mean, the, the service could stop to exist. Or even worse, I mean, it could still exist, but it changes. And that's something we are seeing on a constant basis. It changes in popularity. So maybe more people are using one particular platform, let's say Instagram, and, and others are starting to drop out of another service, right? So the, the, there's a real need for developing adaptive methods which can deal with these sorts of changes over time and still producing sensible output, which is useful to policymakers. Now, can we for a moment just talk about the ethics of the exercise. I mean, clearly the photos were on a public site, so you were quite legitimately studying them. But would the people who posted the photos have known how their data was going to be used? And might some of them have thought twice about posting them in the first place if they had? I mean, in today's world, there's a there's a particular risk in terms of, um, I mean, all of us, we are aware that our activities online are subject to a certain risk of, um, of exploitation by commercial companies. There is a myriad of terms of services which we frequently sign, some in, in many cases, even without reading them, by just um, clicking accept when installing another app or a service on your, on your own personal computer or, or notebook. So this is a very, very important question. But I mean, one thing we shouldn't actually lose sight of is that on the one hand side, there's lots of corporate research going on, which basically happens behind the curtain which is not published by these corporations. And at the same time, there is an area within this, this field of computational social science where these data streams, which we as humans leave behind, can be used for, for social good, for the public good. And so I think it's a debate which we need to have going forward where actually this, this line uh, should be placed, which activities we should encourage, which we actually should adopt, and where we actually should also put certain mechanisms in place that for um, a number of different activities, it shouldn't be possible to exploit what we leave behind online. I'm wondering where we draw the lines, because obviously the technology we're talking about leave behind massive footprints, don't they, which you as, if you like, data archaeologists are able to use for good or ill? It's a really important question. And I, th I think it's a question around which we need much more discussion in society. If you chat to people about what they would be happy for their data to be used for, 
you know, if you talk about examples where it's going to help society work better, you know, perhaps in the area of disease and another area that we work in, people are often very willing to contribute their data for this. On the flip side, if you ask people if they want their data to be used uh, for money to be made from the data, then they're really not interested in that for reasons I, th I think we can all understand. But in reality, what often happens is the people who get hold of the data are the people who are wanting to make money from it because they offer a service back straight away. Whereas those who maybe want to use the data for broader social purposes aren't directly collecting the data because they're not offering those services. And so there's more awareness then that your data is going somewhere else. And so I think um, we need to address these conflicts between what people say if you ask them about use of their data theoretically and what they say when you look at particular concrete cases so that we can make sure that society has thought carefully about the best way we can exploit the data that we're all leaving behind and the best way we can protect society against um, dangers that might exist in, in misuse of, of this data. And of course on a, on a positive note we could say that the new technology is opening up for you as behavioral scientists new and exciting ways of studying human behavior absolutely so this is data which allows us to capture human behavior at a scale that was so difficult to imagine before at rapid speed while people go about their everyday life it's all such stuff which was very difficult to achieve if you just had an experiment where you'd normally only have a small group of people or if you had a survey where you could look to carefully sample from thousands of people but it would probably take you a very long time and so you'd only end up with you know one data point a year for example so this is really allowing us to ask questions about human behavior that it would have been difficult um, to ask before but we must do this in a framework uh, where we're sure that we're, the answers will benefit society. So an exciting time then, Professor Price, to be a behavioural scientist. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And this amount of data which is flowing into um, our databases um, here at Warwick Business School basically allows us to ask very important questions. So we are looking at... Uh, measuring um, behavior quicker than this was possible before. So an example we have seen um, with the travel um, statistics based on photos. But you're also asking other questions, right? I mean, if you have a massive amount of data about what people are interested in, where they are, who they are with, and so on and so forth, coming from information like what they are searching for online, information they leave behind on, on Twitter in terms of text, what they share in terms of photos on, on Flickr, Instagram, and so on and so forth. So if you have all of this and you can basically measure better what is going on right now, then you can also do the next step, right? I mean, another major objective um, of our research program here at, at Warwick Business School's Data Science Lab is actually predicting what is happening in the future. And a third major um, point then obviously could also be measuring aspects of human behavior, which we actually haven't been possible digging into before at all, because we didn't have any data, any no traditional measurements made that are actually possible. Because you actually say that, you know, the work you're doing doesn't just measure what people have done. 
it can be used now to influence what they may go on to do next. Yes, absolutely. And that's a very exciting possibility. I mean, Susan and I, we have looked at a number of different examples in different domain areas. We looked, for example, and at whether um, Google searches can be used in order to say something about um, subsequent um, stock market moves. We looked at whether health-related aspects in terms of diseases spreading uh, across a country can actually be better measured by incorporating um, online data. And so there's a number of different areas um, where these sorts of data sets can really add something very important. And if you're just, I mean, stepping back for a moment and uh, I mean, consider that what we are doing nowadays online more or less captures Everything. I mean, all of our activities from the very beginning in the morning to the evening and the end when we basically put our phone next to us, it is all captured via different services online. And so there is a myriad of different application um, scenarios where this can actually help us to dig better into subsequent human behavior. Of which some will be good and some less good. I mean, is this kind of leading to a brave new world of progress and the end of disease or some sort of dystopian nightmare where people are getting very rich at the expense of lots of other people. I think it's important that we work towards uh, the former suggestion that we um, I'm glad to hear that <laughs> that we can we can use this data to um, help us make better decisions for for society. So, for example, another piece of work that we've done in the area of health has looked at whether we can use, again, photos online um, to get some insight into the relationship between how healthy and happy we feel and how beautiful the environments we live and spend time in are. And that's a tantalising curtain raiser to a future podcast I'll be doing with a colleague of yours, Professor Moat, again on the subject of this time landscape views on the net. But finally, Professor Price, do you belong to the pessimistic school of thought that sees possible nightmares ahead with this technology? Or are you more optimistic, believing in real progress and ultimately benefit for humankind? I'm always optimistic. Um, I mean, uh, the the innovation and all the advance we have seen over the past, um, actually in this case, already decades, is quite extraordinary. I think our job as, as scientists contributing um, to applications, but crucially also to the public debate, is actually really showing in these scenarios what is possible. Because in order to have an informed discussion within the global family of, of, of countries, it is very important to define where to go and how far you can actually go with certain applications and to find at some point standards which could actually be applied to. And that distinctly optimistic note brings our conversation to a close. Professor Price, Professor Moat, thank you. And you can read more about behavioural science on the Warwick Business School website, along with articles on healthcare management, finance, strategy, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School.